All right, gang, good to see you guys. I know announcements were a little uh, extra today. And by extra, I just mean extra in length, not extra Donje, just extra in length. But there's so much going on, right? It's the beginning of the new year. Studies are starting back up again. Wanted to make sure you understood what's happening on the Wednesday night studies and thought maybe putting a name or a face with each of those different studies would be uh, helpful this morning. So again, my, uh, my encouragement is to avail yourself of some of these different midweek opportunities. Uh, any opportunity to grow in fellowship and to grow in the word is a, is a good one. Amen? Amen. So kids, I guess uh, the good news is you guys are dismissed today. I thought you were in. I got this whole message like ready for you guys, but apparently Donjay's got something he's going to share with you, so I'm sure you'll catch this online later. And elementary kids, you guys are dismissed uh, as well, so as they uh, head out, um, like I said, announcements were a little uh, extra long today, and uh, the message might be a little longer today than it was last week. Apparently last week you guys got out of here early. We weren't here. Pastor Chris had a great word to share, super encouraged uh, by what he shared. Uh, but I think I've got some extra time that I owe you guys. I want to make sure everybody gets their money's worth when they come to church on a Sunday morning. No, just, just kidding. What? No. So we're going to actually be back together next week, uh, continuing our study through the book of Mark. But for today, I wanted to just take a moment um, just to get, or maybe for some of us to kind of continue to get uh, our hearts kind of prepared for a new year uh, ahead. And I know that there's, there's nothing magical, you know, about the, the turning of the page on the calendar. Uh, but I do think every year there is just a renewed sense of hope, maybe a renewed, you know, an expectation with the beginning of a new year. And I think it comes practically, and I think there's a sense in which it comes spiritually. I actually saw this meme yesterday, and it really did actually make me laugh out loud, literally. And if you can't read it, it says this. It says, me calling God to make sure I'm registered for the fun and successful package and not the trial and tribulation package for 2023. Right, so how many of us have been on hold, right, waiting for, for that to pick up? And, and, you know, maybe that's you. I know sometimes I feel like I'm in that boat, but Again, I think that the new year is this time where our hope for the next year is that it's going to be, in a lot of ways, better than it was the year before. You know, it's a time for new starts, you know, a new start, as Donjay mentioned, reading or, or listening through the Bible, uh, you know, a new start with some old habits, a new start with a fresh or at least kind of a renewed perspective on things. You know, in the book of Lamentations, the Bible says that God's mercies are new every morning. And so how much more so are they new, does it seem, at the beginning of the new year? And I have to say, as I've been kind of prayerfully looking ahead to 2023 and maybe looking back a little bit on 2022, I feel like I've been really encouraged because I just really feel like the Lord has given me some super clear instruction personally on exactly what it is that he wants from me in this coming year. And I think I can safely say that it would translate into what he wants for all of us individually and, and certainly I hope for us as a church corporately. And I think in a word, it is simply just to keep things simple. Just keep things simple as it relates to our relationship with him. And I want us to look today at one of what is one of my favorite events in the life of Jesus, so much so apparently as, as I was preparing this this week, it occurred to me I may have already taught this text at this church right when I got here, and yet the good news is that that means that lots of you weren't even here yet, and for those of you who were here, you probably weren't even listening yet. So anyway, it's going to be new for all of us because it was new for me. But I think this text is going to give us, I think, what are some great important reminders about our walk with Jesus, stuff that can really bless us as we just keep them in our hearts as we head into this new year. So you can turn, uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles that we're happy to let you use. You can use a Bible on your phone whatever Bible you want to use. But we're going to look together at what is, I'm sure, a very familiar event in Jesus' life. It's the, 
the turning of the water into wine, you remember, at that wedding feast in Cana. Because I think that just kind of working our way through just these 11 verses, this is the account of the very first miracle that Jesus did. But I really think that there's so much in here as God could reveal his heart to us for this coming year. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to do exactly that and just to bless uh, our time. So Father, we thank you so much. Lord, as has already been prayed, we thank you for your provision for us of this place and this time, uh, this opportunity, Lord, the freedom that we have to gather together corporately, Lord, to study your word and to proclaim your name. Father, we pray as we do, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher, that he would be the one to guide us into your truth. Father, we pray you'd give us ears to hear what he would say to your church this morning, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So you've certainly heard it said that what seeing is believing, right? Or they'll often say that a, a picture is worth a thousand words. And it's so true. So often what we see can really dramatically affect what we believe. And so knowing that, of course, the four gospels, they record for us about 35 specific separate miracles that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. And of course, we've seen just in the early chapters of the book of Mark, just the mention of countless others that we know that he performed. And these miracles, some would propose, and it was, it's not true, but these miracles that Jesus did, he didn't do in some sort of a failed attempt to rid the world of sickness, right? To heal everybody that was suffering. But instead, the miracles that Jesus did, we know, they, he did them because they established his authority to forgive sin, right? They proved that he was the son of God. They proved that he was sent by God. Ultimately, they proved that he is God. And these specific miracles that were recorded, you know, the, the details, they weren't the only ones that he did, again, but they were the specific ones that each of the authors picked out under the inspiration, of course, of the Holy Spirit to represent the work of Jesus. You remember that at the end of John's gospel, he basically says that, you know, if everything that Jesus did was written down, that the books of the world would be filled with the accounts of all of Jesus' miracles, right? And so out of all of the miracles that Jesus performed, John, in his gospel account, he selects only seven that he really focuses in on, and these are the seven that he and the, the Spirit, of course, believe would prove the deity of Jesus. And so this morning we're going to look at what is the first of those seven, and as we jump in and we kind of join Jesus and his initial disciples, what I think it's important to remember is that we are just literally at this point in John's account, we are days into the beginning of just the preparation of Jesus for his public ministry, right? This is that whole period where he's just preparing to be presented to the people. We talked about it, this is about a year before where Mark picks up. It's that first year that we sort of termed the year of obscurity, right? All of this that we're going to read happened then. It's when Jesus was just meeting his disciples for the first time, right? They were just sort of getting to know him. And so John's account, he details for us just the first days, kind of day by day of how this all went down. In John chapter one, he talks about the first day. That's the day that we find John the Baptist quizzed by the Pharisees, right? Who are you and what exactly are you doing? He says, I'm the forerunner who was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. John tells us that on the second day is the day that Jesus showed up. And John pointed him out and recognized him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and on whom John says he saw the Spirit descend like a dove, right? On the day after that, just the third day, John tells us, we see John the Baptist again. And this time, two of John the Baptist's disciples, right? John, the author of this book, and Andrew the brother of Peter, they leave John to follow after Jesus. And they testify there that he is indeed the Messiah, right? He's the Christ. 
Now on the fourth day, it tells us that up in the Galilee, then Jesus meets Philip and Nathanael, right? They also bear witness that Jesus is the one that all of the Old Testament prophets had been speaking about, that he was the, the son of God and the king of Israel. And so it's right here now where John picks up in verse 1 of chapter 2, where we read that it says that on the third day, right? So this is the third day probably after the calling of Philip and Nathaniel, right? So we are a total of just seven days since the beginning of the action of John's account. And I think this is important for us to remember because we can kind of read right through these gospel accounts and not really understand the fact that all of these things, all of the events were just beginning to unfold before the eyes of these first disciples. They were just in their initial stages of learning about who Jesus was and what he was here to do. And now here, three days later, they were about to learn a whole lot more because it's in this account that they're about to see some of the glory of Jesus revealed. And I do think it's interesting for you Bible students, isn't it interesting that they're going to witness this, right? They're going to see the revelation of his glory here on what John says is the third day. Is that a coincidence? Of course it's not. Think about it. This is a, a clear reference, I believe, to the third day, which foreshadows for us what would happen on the third day after his crucifixion, which was, of course, the resurrection. The time when Jesus' glory ultimately was going to finally be manifest to all as he rose from the dead, confirming his ministry, confirming his deity, and confirming the full and satisfying payment that he'd made for our sins. Okay, but back to our New Year's text, right? Because it was on this third day. Look at the rest of verse 1. We're going to join into this kind of a joyous celebratory occasion. It says that on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So what is a more joyous occasion than a wedding? right, in just about any culture. Now, in Jesus' culture, understand that a Jewish wedding celebration didn't simply last for a day. They lasted for a whole week. And during that time, all of the, the guests and the friends and the relatives, they would come and actually stay there at the home of the bride and groom-to-be, right? It was sort of a like a honeymoon, family reunion, bachelor party, wedding shower, kind of all rolled into a week, right? Now, this wedding, it says, was in Cana of Galilee. We know that's about six or eight miles just north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. We're told specifically that Jesus' mother was there. Now, don't you think it's interesting? John doesn't even give us her name. And in fact, if you read through all of John's gospel, by the inspiration of the Spirit, he never specifically names either himself or Mary, the mother of Jesus. Again, so as not to draw any attention to them, but to keep the attention solely focused back on Jesus. We find both John and Mary, it says, along with the rest of the disciples, here they are together at the wedding feast. Now, we're not told exactly whose wedding this was. And yet some Bible students have speculated because of the way that we're going to see Mary respond here in a moment that she may have actually in some way been related either to the bride or to the groom because what we read next is that they are about to experience a very pressing practical problem. Look at verse 3. It says that when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, we read a sentence like that, and we might not see this as something that a quick trip to Costco couldn't fix, right? Or maybe even just dial it up on Instacart, have them bring some more wine down, and let's just keep this party going. But the truth is that to run out of wine at one of these kind of week-long wedding bashes, this was a major issue. 
This was the kind of social failure that you never recover from, right? This is the social failure of a lifetime. This was a culture, we have no culture like this in America, but this was a culture that placed a high, high value on hospitality. And the very worst thing that could happen at a wedding is that you would in any way show disrespect to your guests, that somehow you hadn't made the proper provision for them. Right? The Jews believed that to fail to provide for your guests at a wedding would bring a lifetime of social disgrace. Historians tell us that in a close-knit community like the, the ones in Jesus' day, this kind of blunder would have haunted the newly married couple for their entire lives. Now, why was it such a big deal? Well, besides the hospitality piece, in that time, wine was considered to be a symbol of joy. Right? We see it referenced that way in the scriptures. The rabbis taught that same thing. And so to run out of wine, the implication is that's almost the equivalent of somehow admitting that neither the bride nor the groom were happy. Right? So on another note, I think there's such a perfect picture here for us in this wineless wedding because in a lot of ways this is a picture, I think, of the lost in the world today. People that don't yet know the Lord Jesus, you know, they've drunk of the joy that the world has to offer, and yet suddenly the supply has run dry. Right? They may have drunk deeply of all the pleasures the world has to offer, maybe even for days and days on end, but there's no lasting satisfaction, right? And the fulfillment that they did have, right, the buzz is starting to wear off and their thirst is starting to return. And yet the Bible talks about, you know, thirsty sinners being invited. It says in Isaiah 55, you know, that, that we're invited to come to Jesus for salvation and for satisfaction. It says, everyone who thirsts, right, come to the waters. And then down in verse 6, he continues. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And so effectively what we see is that when the supply of wine was all used up, that's precisely what Mary does here. She turns to Jesus because she has some sort of a hope, right? She has an expectation that he is somehow going to be able to solve this problem. Now, as we mentioned before, some people believe that Mary's concern here tells us that in some way she may have even been kind of a hostess at this wedding. Maybe she was even like the wedding coordinator is what we would call it. And so maybe personally she would have been disgraced as well over the, the, the shortage of wine. And I, I think that could be true. And yet I think as well, I think it's very possible, even probable, that Mary was interested here in something way more significant than just the provision of wine. Right, think about this with me just for a second. No doubt at this point, for years, right, she has been earnestly anticipating, you know, the day of Jesus' demonstration, if you will, because that for her would be the day of her vindication. Right? As a young woman, remember, probably 14, maybe 15 years old, Mary had become miraculously pregnant by the Spirit of God, and the Bible talks about her being highly favored by God. It says that she's blessed among women, and yet no doubt she must have been the subject of severe, you know, speculation and slander and conversation and commotion, right? And so now for 30 years, Mary has lived with this sense that the, her character has been unjustly kind of maligned. And so I think that it's very possible that at this point, she's looking to her son, not just for wine, but she's looking to him to be a witness. A witness of the fact, if, you know, she kind of felt like if people could only see who he truly is, then they would perhaps see the truth about her as well. So she comes to Jesus, he says, look, you know, there's no wine. Come on, boy, it's time. 
right? Mary had been waiting for years for Jesus to be about his father's business. And now think about what's happened for her just recently. You know, as we just saw kind of going through the chronology, he had just first been publicly acknowledged by John the Baptist. He's just begun to gather these men kind of around him. And so certainly, no doubt, she's anxious with anticipation for him to really excel and for her reputation to be repaired. And yet, it says in verse 4 that Jesus said to her, he says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we read that, and his answer almost sounds a little sharp, right? maybe even rude, but he calls her woman, right, instead of mother or, or, or ideally mom, right? And yet, the, the word that Jesus uses for woman isn't a demeaning word. It's not like he's saying, hey, old lady, you know, leave me alone or something. But the Greek word that he uses there for woman is a, a, a term of respect, even one of endearment. But though respectful, he does kind of gently rebuke her here, right? Because, again, his, you know, he, his explanation tells us that he was as much about his father's glory as he was his mother's good. Because he knew that the timing just wasn't right. Now, we've talked a little bit about that phrase, my hour. And it's a phrase that comes here from John's gospel. He uses it seven different times. And each time, it's in reference to the fact that the hour hasn't arrived yet. And then finally in John 17, right, just hours before his crucifixion, Jesus prays this. He says, Father, the hour has come. He says, glorify your son that your son may also glorify you, right? So the hour is that time of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. It's that irrefutable declaration of who he was and that undeniable proof of his deity, right? That time when his earthly ministry was finished and his appointed mission was accomplished and his father had been fully glorified. And though that time would eventually come, it wasn't that time yet. And so effectively what Jesus is saying to his mother is, look, I know better than anyone how you've been waiting patiently. I know the way you've been hurt, right? I understand about your situation, but it's not time to fix everything, not quite yet. And the thing that we notice about Jesus, all reading through all the gospel accounts, is Jesus is never prompted by other people's timetables. Right? He's not pushed by anybody else's schedule. He says, yes, Mary, I understand that you want me to be revealed as Emmanuel, right? The, the miraculously born Messiah, but it's not time yet. And although you're my earthly mother, I need to follow the timeline of my heavenly father. And I think in this, in this interaction, I think so often we too can ask the Lord, right? to get, do something that's going to get us out of a situation, get us off the hook, you know, make us look better, kind of justify our sullied reputation. But so often when we make those kind of requests, they're not his will for us. They're not his highest for us at that time. And so often it's at those times that Jesus can kind of whisper to our hearts, I think just like he said here gently to Mary, he said, what does your concern have to do with me? This is not the hour, right? This is not the time. This is not the place. He says, yes, the problem will be solved. Yes, your reputation will be salvaged. Yes, provision will be made. Or yes, healing will be enjoyed, but it's not yet because the hour has not yet come. And I think that's always a good thing for us to carry with us, especially as we head in to a new year. Maybe you've heard that same voice from the Lord. I, I know that I have. And it's at those times, maybe once he's sort of so gently dealt with our hearts, that all we can do is just respond in humility and respond in faith. And that's, I think, exactly what we see Mary do next in verse 5. And I think that we need to give Mary some credit here. 
And this is really one of the things that I want us to see and really key in on together this morning and really carry in with us to the new year because in this very next verse, Mary makes one of what is the most important statements that was ever uttered by a human being. I don't want us to take it out of its context. I want us to understand it within the context, but even just within the context, it's amazing. And, and from this context, we can take this and surely this can become a directive for our lives. Now, I'll just say for those of you who aren't looking at a Bible, don't you wish you had a Bible right now to look at? Right? Because you could just look ahead and see what we're talking about. You wouldn't have to wait for me to go through my whole song and dance to get to it. But it's so simple, it's so true, it's so profound, and it gives us what is really, I think, some really key instruction. Look at verse 5. It says, His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. And I so appreciate Mary's heart here. Because even though Jesus hadn't granted her, right, he hadn't sort of satisfied that motivation that was behind her request. He wasn't going to reveal himself as Messiah. But her response here to the servants when she says, you know what, you do whatever he tells you. It tells me that even though she may not have understood why he wouldn't do what she wanted him to do, she may not have understood what it was he was going to do, and yet she trusted him to do the right thing. And I think that there's so much wrapped up in her statement, whatever he says to you, do it. No doubt there is a series of Sunday morning messages right there. But I, I think that this, this morning, if I had one thing to say to us, right, that would really, we should take into the new year in order to really simplify things for us, that's what it would probably be. Whatever Jesus says, do it. And so if you write in your Bible, put a star by that verse because I believe, in essence, that is all that Christianity really is. That's the essence of our faith wrapped up in a sentence. But what's happened is man has made our faith so complicated. Right? We have volumes and volumes of opinions and opinions over, you know, it's this approach. No, it's not. It's that approach. Or it's this, you know, this is important. No, that's important. Or you need to focus on this. No, no, no. You need to focus on this. Or this is the key. And they say, no, no, no. That's the key. Well, can I just say in humility, this is the key. Right? The key is whatever Jesus says, do it. No matter what it is that you're facing in your life this year and every year afterward. Here's Mary in just one little sentence. She turns to the, she turns to the servants. Understand, these are people who have a big problem, right? They, this is a problem that they have no hope of being able to solve. This is this pressing, you can't just whip up wine in the kitchen at a wedding. Right? This is a, a, a huge pressing issue that they can't do anything about no matter how hard they would try to do it. And she just turns and she says something so amazing and so simple. She says, whatever he says to you, do it. And I want to suggest to you this morning that your life in following the Lord and your life in serving the Lord should never be any more complicated than that statement. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I believe the Bible tells us clearly God has an opinion about everything in our lives. I also believe that his opinion is right about everything about which he has an opinion, right? I believe that he's interested in every aspect of our lives. I believe, for example, for the men who are husbands, right, that God is interested in us as husbands. He sees the areas where we're deficient. He sees the areas where we need to grow. And he has an opinion about those things. He has something he wants to say to us about that. And I believe at the end of the day that being a husband shouldn't really be any more complicated ever than whatever Jesus says to you, do it. And I certainly don't mean to pick on the husbands, and yet I know you guys can handle it, right? Which is why I did. 
But the same thing goes for wives. The same thing goes for children. The same thing goes even for the teens. It goes for the unmarried. It goes for the once married. It goes for the hoping to be married. It goes for the I never want to be married, right? It goes for all of us as workers, right? This is a principle that applies to every single sphere of every relationship that we have in our human experience. It works when we face problems that we don't know how to solve. But when we're up against problems that are way too big for us, problems that have this threat of consequences that will haunt us, right? And I, and I don't think I'm oversimplifying it when I say that our lives and our faith should never be more complicated than whatever he says to you, do it. Now, you're saying, okay, okay, we get the point, right? You don't need to keep repeating it. Well, are you sure that I don't need to keep repeating it? Because I think that I do, because I know myself, and I know you, and what we do is we overcomplicate things, right? Each and every time. Human beings, we just have this way of making things complicated. Give us the simplest thing, and five minutes later, what have we done? We've overcomplicated, right? Life is complicated. Jesus is not complicated in a sense, amen? He wants to speak into our complicated lives and he wants to simplify things because Jesus has a plan. And what we're called to do is to simply trust that he does. And that's what I love here about Mary, right? Is that even though even though she didn't fully understand what it was he was going to do, she sensed she knew that he was going to do something. He was going to do something to work in this situation, that he was going to meet this need. And so she just puts the whole thing into his hands for him to do whatever he wants in whatever way he wants to do it. Again, a great reminder for every one of us because what we're going to see now in the next verse is that faced with this very practical problem that seemed to have no solution, Jesus is going to provide this wonderful miracle, right, to address the issue. Look at verse 6. It's this wonderfully miraculous solution. It says in verse 6 that there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, that verse doesn't make a lot of sense until we remember that the Jews saw themselves always as being ceremonially unclean if they didn't wash before and after every meal. And these pots, John tells us specifically, these would have been the water pots that would have been used for this whole group at the wedding to do those ritual washings, right? These were not pots that were used for drinking water. And in fact, just the thought of drinking anything out of these pots would have been disgusting in the mind of a Jew. And yet, look what Jesus says in verse 7. Jesus says to them, look at just the beginning, he says, fill the water pots with water. Fill the water pots with water? This would have been just like Jesus saying, hey, see those six garbage cans over there? I want you to go fill those things up with a bunch of water. Right? So another thing, again, we can carry into the new year because if you're you know, one of the things you're going to find is you seek to just simplify. And if you're saying, okay, Lord, I don't want it to be any more complicated than whatever you say, I'm going to do it. I'm ready for that. Whatever you tell me, Lord, I'm going to do it. Well, get ready. Because oftentimes, whatever he says to you might not always make sense to you. Right? Because the first thing we notice is that Jesus is telling them to do something that's not going to get them any closer to the solution to their problem. Right? He doesn't say anything about wine. He doesn't say he knows a guy who knows a guy who probably has a storehouse full of wine. He doesn't even say, hey, I saw a Bevmo on the way here, you know, hook up a wagon. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, 
what Jesus does is he gives them these instructions that are only going to create a mountain more of work for them and not get them any closer to their desired destination. Right? Understand, we need to know this about the Lord, especially for all of you scientific minds out there. Right? For all of you who tend to be super practical people, for the, the pragmatic ones who we like to do things efficiently, understand that God's idea of efficiency is very different than yours is. Right? We would understand, right, what? The shortest distance between two points is what? Well, it's a straight line. So if I want to go from here to there, I just kind of plot the course, or I ask the Google lady, right, and she tells me what the most direct route to get there is. I want to be efficient. But with the Lord, when he says go from here to there, he doesn't always go in a straight line, right? Understand that in God's economy, the most efficient way isn't always the most efficient way, if you get what I mean. Remember in the book of Acts, remember Philip the deacon. And remember he had fled from Jerusalem, Acts chapter 8, in the wake of that persecution that Saul had created. And we're told that he went up to Samaria. And so in our geography, right, we remember our map there of Israel. He's down in the south where Jerusalem is. And so he goes up north up into Samaria. And of course, we know that the Lord does wonderful things up there through him, and this revival breaks out. But then where after Samaria does he go? Well, the Lord calls him to go all the way down past Jerusalem, down all the way to the road that goes down to Gaza, right? This is almost as far to the southwest as you can go without falling into the sea, right, and still being in the land of Israel. This is the place where he meets the Ethiopian, right? This man who gets saved and then baptized by Philip, and then that man takes the gospel and heads down and takes it to Africa, right? So where does the Lord call Philip to go after that? Well, he goes straight back up north, he runs nearly the entire coastline of the country until he finally ends up in Scenaria, which, look at the map, is a stone's throw, I mean, sorry, Scenaria, Caesarea, which is a stone's throw from Caesarea. So here's this person in his life, and the Lord takes him this way, and then the Lord takes him that way, and the Lord leads him this other way. Then he leads him back the, to where he was in the first place, and then even way beyond that. And if we're Philip, we could say, Lord, if you wanted me in Caesarea, why didn't you just send me to Caesarea? And God says, well, I did send you to Caesarea. And Philip says, well, I know I got here eventually, but you sent me north, and then you sent me south, only to go back up north again, when I could have just hopped right over, right, from Samaria to Caesarea. And the Lord says, well, exactly. But that wasn't my way. He says, that was your way. You were always going to Caesarea, but I wanted you to go my way, which is the best way. Because look at all the things I did through you and in you along the way. So really, it was the most efficient way. And I think it's so important for us to remember this about the Lord, right, in this coming year. That his directions he gives us will sometimes challenge our common sense, right? They are going to challenge our pragmatic nature. And let me tell you, if that's going to be a problem for you, what you need to also know about the Lord is that the Lord is much more stubborn than you are. And I mean that in a sanctified kind of a sense, amen? A holy stubbornness in the sense that he will not give up on you. God doesn't tolerate pragmatism in his children. And so often he'll say, okay, Billy, right? We can learn this the easy way, or we can learn this the less easy way, right? And if you won't learn this the less easy way, what does he have? He has a less, less easier way, right? And then there's the hard way. And then after that, what is there? There's the really hard way, right? And I have been that way before, right? I know some of you guys have too. But the point is that he won't give up. 
He will not give up on you. He loves you way too much and he wants you to learn how to yield your life over to him. To yield to the Holy Spirit as he's speaking into your life and he's giving you direction for your life. And yes, very often it will seem to translate into more work in your life. Could Jesus not have solved this problem with the wine in any number of different ways? Of course he could have. And yet what he chose to do is whatever he says to you, do it. Jesus could have simply said, you know, hold my lemonade, right? Stand back, watch me, right? And all of a sudden, everybody's cup instantaneously filled with wine, every pitcher overflowing with wine, and everyone says, wow, you know. It could have been like that, and yet it wasn't. Instead, he looks at this group of panicking servants, and he says, hey, guys, you see those big old 20 to 30-gallon stone water pots? I want you to fill those up with water. And understand, they didn't have a garden hose, right? They may have had a bucket. There may have been a well close by if they were lucky. Now, I know there's some smart people in here. Do the math with me. You've got six water pots, 30 gallons each. That's what, 180 gallons of water. Let's just divide that by one of those five-gallon buckets like we would pick up at Home Depot. That's at least... 36 full buckets of water. Have you ever carried a five-gallon bucket full of water? Have you ever pulled one using your hands and a rope up out of a well? And have you ever done it 36 times? Of course you haven't. Just how long is that going to take? Right? How much work is that going to be? You think about, I don't know how many servants there were, but these guys are sweating and they're going to be huffing and they're going to be puffing. And I don't know about you, but I have served the Lord and I have had to follow the Lord as he led me in some ways I didn't really appreciate. And I mean that lovingly, right? And reverently. But we've all had the Lord lead us in doing things in our lives or in, or in taking us somewhere in our life. And we've thought, what are you doing, Lord? This is not the way we're supposed to be doing this. This is not the place that I thought that I was headed. What are you doing with my life? I thought we were going here, and now I'm over here doing this. And, you know, you, you start asking that question at the point that you're pulling up all of this water with no explanation about why you're doing it, no expectation of what might happen when it's done. And you have to think that roundabout gallon 75, or getting up even to gallon 100, right, the point where you're what are those? Are your deltoids, right? Your deltoids are burning and your back is killing you and you're just the one hauling all the water in this relationship. You're the one hauling all the water in the family or on this project or in this ministry. You're the one doing all of the heavy lifting in whatever this situation is. And in your mind, naturally, you have to start asking the question, what is this all supposed to lead to? And you just want to quit. But look next what it says. Notice what kind of servants these guys were. Look at the rest of verse 7. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. They said, all right, you want water? We will give you water. And they filled them until they couldn't fill them anymore. Now, we have all met people who may be walking with the Lord. They may even be serving the Lord. But they are certainly not doing it up to the brim, right? And I just want to encourage us, there, again, there's so many wonderful principles that we can take with us from this passage and be reminded of, you know, for this year and beyond it. Here Jesus is telling these guys to do something that doesn't make any sense. It's really not the right way to get wine, right? I don't know that there's ever in history that this is how you get wine either before or after this, right? But they did exactly what he said, and they did it till they couldn't do it anymore. They did exactly what he told them to do, and they did it all the way until the moment when that last bucket was put into that last barrel, and it just overflowed, and then they said, okay, we're done. That's it. They're full. We did exactly what you told us to do. 
And understand this, that because they not only did it without question, because they not only did it to the fullest, what that now means is that the miracle that Jesus wants to do is now going to be fulfilled to the greatest measure possible. 180 gallons worth of miracle. Imagine if these guys had been lazy and just given Jesus half full water pots. There would have only been half as much wine. There would have only been half as much blessing of the way that Jesus wanted to pour out blessing on these people. And sometimes I wonder how often in the way that we serve the Lord or in the way that we're devoted to the Lord, how often do we only give ourselves to him halfway? And then when we're only blessed halfway in return, we start to wonder why or we start to complain at him. You guys, when God calls you to do something this year, whether it's in the ministry or whether it's personally or professionally or parentally, whatever it is, do it to the fullest. Because it's only then that you'll see the abundance with which Jesus is able and wants to provide for us. There's a great quote by a Christian author I read years ago. And she wrote this. She said, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known you better, I'd have come running with a bucket. Right? The Apostle Paul, of course, writes about him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. But that blessing of abundance only comes so often as we step out in that simple obedience, right? Up to the brim kind of obedience to exactly what Jesus tells us to do, right? Whatever he says to you, do it and do it up to the brim and you'll find you'll be blessed in that overflowing way. And again, I want us to be reminded as we start out this year that Christianity really is that simple, Right? The ministry is really that simple. It can be hard. We're going to get all sweaty. We're going to go this way. We're going to go that way. We're going to be dragging buckets of water up from a well. Right, But again, we're going to do it. We're going to fill them up to the brim like these servants did. That's what we want to be. We want to do what he tells us to do and do it to the full. Because when we do that, then we can just sit back and wait and watch what he's going to do. Because what happens next, right, faced with this pressing practical problem on this joyous occasion, Jesus has provided this miraculous solution. He's had these servants follow this kind of key instruction. And the next result is wonderful. It's this surprisingly unexpected outcome, except that there was one more thing the servants needed to do. And this next thing I think is the most difficult thing. It's even more difficult than what they had just done. Look what it says in verse eight. It says that he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Now, sometimes I think, again, we can read these stories and we just kind of run right through the verses and we can miss out on what's really going on here. Consider the faith of these servants here. Right? They have just filled up these six purification pots with water. These are the very same pots that everybody just used to wash themselves up right after their journey and before the feast, and, and that hadn't made a bit of sense. And now Jesus tells them to take some of that wash pot water and take it to the master so he can have a drink of it. See, now this is where it gets really hard, right? The other part was just manual labor, right? That was just kind of overcoming your flesh to do the job, but now you have to take it and give it to the guy in charge. Can you imagine how upset the master is gonna be when you hand him a, a cup of wash pot water instead of wine? You're gonna lose your job, right? If that's all that you lose. And yet here we see that they believed, they obeyed, and they obeyed one step at a time, right? Not having any idea what was going to happen next. Now that's the hard part, isn't it? Jesus didn't say, okay, everybody, come on over here for a holy huddle, right? Here's the plan. 
Here's what's going to happen. You see those water pots? I want you guys to fill those up with water. Then I'm going to perform a miracle. I'm going to change the water into wine. None of you guys are going to lose your heads or your jobs. right? John's going to write about it in the second chapter of his gospel. You guys are all going to be famous. He doesn't do any of that, right? Instead, Jesus tells the servants what he wanted them to do, and he told them just one step at a time. And the miracle happened only as they faithfully followed each and every step. If you're anything like me, too often I want to know steps two through five before I'm even willing to consider starting on step one. It's like, okay, Lord, let me know what the plan is. Where, where's this all headed, right? Once you make that clear to me where I'm going to be next month or next year or whatever, lay it out clearly, and then I might go for it, right? But you guys know that's not how the Lord works. He unfolds his plan for us the same way he did for the servants at the wedding. He does it one step at a time. And I know that we all know that. Right? We all know that intellectually, but here's what we so often forget. And if you're taking notes, write this down. And if you're not taking notes, you should be taking notes so you can write this down. Understand this. The point where we stop obeying is the point where this all stops happening. Right? When we stop obeying, he stops unfolding. He stops laying out his plan before us. And I know we have some apologists in the room. They're going to get all over me for this next statement. But I, I think it's absolutely true experientially if it's not true theologically. But there is only one thing in this universe that can limit what God wants to do. And it's us. Right? It's us. And that's a sobering thought because our unbelief our faithlessness can limit the creator of the universe from doing the work in our lives that he can and wants to do. We will stop him from what he wants to do to bring healing and to bring wholeness and to pour out blessing and to do miracles because God is not going to force himself upon us. But rest assured, when we, like the servants, when we take those steps of faith, right, even when what we're doing doesn't make sense, and even when the task seems to be impossible, God is going to honor our obedience, and we are going to see great things happen. Because look what we read next. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then that which is inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. So not only had the water been changed to wine, but it had been changed into really good wine. I imagine this is probably the best wine that had ever been made. Amen? Right. So usually at the feast, right, they put out the good stuff first when everybody's taste buds were fresh. But then as the feast goes on and you get a little less discerning, right, it's like, okay, bring out the box wine at this point, right? Now, I, I know we don't have time for this, but get over it because I want to pause and I want to have us think about this for a minute because I think it's worth considering it doesn't tell us here in the text exactly when in the process this miracle happened. When did the water actually turn into wine? And I think it's important, and I happen to have an opinion about it, right, which will shock you. But when did the miracle happen? Now, here you've got some choices, right? You've got these six huge water pots, right? Did they all just bam, right, all turn into wine right at once as soon as they were filled? Right, so that as a servant, you come over to the water pots with your pitcher, you're going to fill it up, you're going to take it to the master and serve the guests, and you look and you say, oh, look, it's beautiful wine. This is awesome. Oh, this is going to be so cool. Wait till the boss gets a taste of this thing. Or does the water stay as water in the water pots? And so Jesus says, hey, go take some of that and give it to the guy. And you say, are you serious with me right now, Jesus? Right? You want me to take this water? 
why don't you take the water, Mr. Miracle Guy? Right? Miracle Guy who's trying to get me killed. Jesus, this is a wedding. We're out of wine. People are panicking, and you want me to walk up to the boss and go, here's some water. I hope it tastes like wine. I don't know about you, but this is often exactly how it works, at least in my life. And because of that, in my opinion, I think that the whole time that they were serving, that those water pots were full of water. I think that every time they went back over there, they went, again, this is crazy. Yeah, yeah, this is great. It's going to be great. Here, have some more of this. Right? Here we go. (laughs) Because that's how it usually works in my life. Right? I don't have a whole stock of water pots already full of wonderful wine at my house. Right there at the ready. You know, I got maybe a bunch of water pots full of wash pot water. Right? Best case scenario, I've got that at the ready. I don't have these water pots full of wonderful wine in my ministry and in my life, right? There's nothing more than these water pots of wash water, and every step as I'm called to give that out, every step is a step of faith. And I'm saying that only because I want to be an encouragement to those of you who might have lives that are similar to mine. Now, there might be some of you in this room that might have water pots that are always overflowing with wonderful wine. Right? You've always got the best wine at your disposal, and God has just super blessed you that you just look around and you say, man, this is great. I've got this whole reservoir of this wonderful stuff always at my disposal. I'm always at the ready just to pour out this blessing upon everybody. And if that's you, then God bless you. And we want to talk to you, and we want to sign you up, and maybe you can be the pastor here, Right? Because for most of us, that's just not the way that it works. For most of us, this is a life of faith. And every single step is a step of faith. And it's difficult, but we just keep going because we know that there's a blessing there in all of this. Because we know that the wine will come. Because we know that Jesus is the one who has an unlimited supply at the ready. And we know that the wine that Jesus is going to miraculously provide to us that we can then provide to other people, we know that that wine in the end is going to be much better than any wine that we could supply at the beginning. And that's the picture that's painted for us in this very first miracle, right? The first miracle that Jesus performed. Because in this first sign, it's a clear picture of the fact that those things which only the Lord can provide for us, they will always surpass the things that the world can offer. Here, the wine that Jesus had provided was far superior, and it was about to bring joy to everybody who drank it, just as he has done for so many of us already in this room this morning. Right, That miracle of conversion, not of converting water into wine, Right? But converting us from those old ways into these new ways. Right? From those empty, old, hardened hearts now to this new life of Jesus. Or theologically, taking us from that old covenant of the law and ceremony and purification pots now over into this new covenant of grace and relationship and the Spirit. Right? Because this first recorded sign, it's a demonstration of exactly what John said uh, in chapter 1. He said that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So here, this is a miracle that talks about Jesus providing joy, right? Life, the Holy Spirit, right? And in a way, it the, the, the powerful significance of this miracle is that just as the wine that Jesus provided was superior to that wine that had just run out, the new covenant would be superior to the old covenant, right? Because God was, just as they thought the bridegroom had done, God had kept the best gift, the gift of his son, Jesus. He'd kept that back until now. And that's a gift that's available by faith to any and everyone who will accept it and who will start to see Jesus for who he really is. Because look what John finally tells us in our very last verse. Look at verse 11. 
he tells us that this very first miracle, right, had just given them this very first glimpse of the glory of Jesus and that it was an awesome glimpse. It says that this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. So understand this whole first miracle right, about the wine and the thing, it is not meant to be a discussion or a debate about the merits of alcohol. It's a demonstration of the glory of the Lord. John already told us, again, the word became flesh. It dwelt among us. And then what does he say? That we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And here for the very first time, Jesus has given them a glimpse of that. He has shown them just a glimpse of what's been hidden now for the last 30 years. They get a, a little peek into the glory that belongs to Jesus. And yet John says it was enough of a peek to get these few disciples to believe that this carpenter from Nazareth was much, much more than he appeared to be. Right here on the third day, his glory had been revealed in part and they believed in him, which I think is an interesting statement because in a sense, based on what they've said in the previous chapters, we know that they already believed before, right? They had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, but now in a way their belief was deepened. And it was re-expressed. And I, I think this is just so typical of the way God works in our lives, right? We, we know him, but then he does something great in our lives, and we believe in him all over again. So as we close up this morning, we're going to go long today, so I apologize for that. I want you to think about one last thing with me. Beyond all that, you know, what, what he says to us, we should do it. We should do it to the brim, even if it doesn't make any sense. We should just continue moving forward step by step in our faith. We should be offering up to others this wash water that we have out of our wash pots, you know, trusting that Jesus is going to turn it into wine just in time. But even beyond that, I want us to consider this. This story, right, of the whole turning the water into wine, it is so well known today Right? Believers know, I mean, unbelievers, I should say, know about this story. And yet, here's what you need to remember, that at the time that this first sign occurred, the only ones, the only ones there who knew what had truly taken place, the only ones in this crowd who recognized that a miracle had occurred were the servants and the disciples. The only ones who knew were the ones who were watching what it was that the Lord was doing. Nobody else even knew where the wine had come from. Right? There were no oohs and ahs as they poured the wine. Nobody was rushing up to congratulate Jesus on a great vintage or a batch or whatever it's called. Right? All there were were some dropped jaws and some wide eyes on the faces of some exhausted servants and this handful of brand new disciples. The ones who were there who had their eyes fixed on the Lord. Everybody who was at the wedding was blessed by the miracle. And yet only one group of people experienced this double blessing. There was only one group who grew in their knowledge and their understanding of who Jesus was, right? They were, they were all blessed by the miracle, but there was only one group who now saw Jesus as he was truly to be seen. And I think that this is a secret, right? Is that so much ministry happens behind the scenes of the ministry. Right? It's so great on a Sunday morning to see everybody blessed, right? People come and they go and everything's set up and it looks good and there's food and it's tasty and there's music and it's wonderful and we all worship and people are happy. And all the while there is a group of servants who are sitting back and are amazed that it all just got done. 
right? Just amazed that the tech all worked, that that problem got fixed, and that the signs somehow got out, and the coffee somehow got made, and enough food somehow showed up, and we're all just hauling water one bucket at a time, and then somehow God got it all done, and there's wine for everybody. He showed up, right? The spirit worked and he took that wash water and it somehow became wine and the message somehow made some sense even though it came out of the mouth of this donkey, right? But lives are touched, right? And the spirit is moving and people are being ministered to and that is always going to happen because God is in the business of blessing people. But listen, I'm telling you, if you want to be part of the group that's double blessed, but there was this one group there at that wedding that left in awe of Jesus. One group left the wedding blessed, but the other group left it in awe because they appreciated the glory of Jesus, and that was the servants. And if you're here this morning, I think it's safe to say that you want to know more of the glory of Jesus, right? Not just know more intellectually about him, but really know more experientially of him in a, in a deep and a personal way and to have more of that glory revealed to you in this coming year, right? And we've seen here in our text today that that is gonna happen to those who are watching expectantly and who are listening intently and who are serving obediently and have our eyes fixed on him. And I think that that's something so important to carry with us into this year ahead is to place ourselves into the positions where we're there to watch him work. Where we can just see what the Lord is doing and just experience his glory. Because again, the ministry and our lives as Christians is meant to be that simple. Right? It's meant to be this simple. So again, keep it simple. Right? Remember Mary's words, whatever he says to you, do it. And be ready, because he may tell you to do something like fill up a bunch of water pots with well water. And so you might say, well, see what I did there? Well water, well, I know, there's no time for humor, right? But you're going to say, what does that have to do with me? And, and the thing is, the only way you're going to find out what it has to do with you is what? Is to do it. And then do it to the brim, and then you're going to go, oh, Lord, I see what you were doing. I see what you meant. You're going to say, Jesus, you are so good. Right? The life of faith always leads to the glory of God, and it always brings glory to God. It's not complicated. right? Jesus isn't complicated. Life is complicated, and he wants to speak simplicity into that. So the exhortation, Hebrews chapter 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? The author and the finisher of our faith. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. So I'm going to invite the team to come back up. They've been patiently waiting since they escaped youth group. We're going to celebrate communion together, and what a great opportunity to start the year off, right? Just remembering, reflecting on that sacrifice, right? Maybe recommitting to, to the, really having our eyes fixed on him for this coming year. There's, again, so many principles from this passage that we can take and reflect upon in conjunction with all that the Lord has done. So let's take some time and do that. Now, as the team starts to minister, you guys are welcome to come up. I will uncover the elements for you. You can grab the bread, you can grab the cup and just take them back to your seat. Um, and you can take them uh, individually. You'll take them on your own. Uh, and as we continue to worship and when everybody's done that, um, I'll come up and we'll close and we will dismiss. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you so much for today, Lord. We do thank you for the promise of a new year, Lord, and the hope and the expectation, Lord, of things that you want to do afresh and anew in each of our lives, Lord. And as we look ahead, Lord, this morning we also want to look back at the foundation of everything that we base our hope and our future on, Lord, and that's your sacrifice upon the cross. So I pray during this time of communion, Lord, that you would do that work in our hearts that you do, Lord. Make this uh, celebration and this observation of communion
communion. Make it fresh and make it new for us, Lord. Give us an appreciation in a new way for all it was that you sacrificed for us, Lord, and, and all it is that you want to do going forward. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we do it in Jesus' name.